Father, I ask now, now that as we look at your word, you would open our eyes to your beauty and help us to surrender our wills gladly to your perfect reign, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we just started working our way through the book of 1 John, which is an epistle or a letter written by, written by John, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John. And so 1 John is the letter he wrote, just, just to obviously, or maybe it's not so obvious, but maybe sometimes you got, you got to see obvious. So we just started, and, and it gives us insight into what the application of the life of, of Christ and the work of Christ is for all of us. And uh, this week we're looking at the second little section. It's 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. It's printed in your program if you'd like to follow along. He writes, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all our sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is God's word for God's children this morning. If you've been a city dweller for any length of time, you've had the experience of walking home after dark and walking up to or walking past a group of people or an individual and feeling a little bit, a little bit of because it was after dark and maybe if you were walking alone and you felt a little vulnerable, like, like is, am I really going to be okay here? Because there's something scary about walking in the darkness when you can't really assess your surroundings, when you feel vulnerable and, uh, and at risk. But at the same time, you walk down that same street during the day and you can look people in the eye and you can, then there's lots of people around and none of those feelings tend to come up. And so that's the idea of walking in the light, which is what this passage is about. It's interesting as he, he's here that we need to walk in the light as he is in light. And that's probably one of those vaguest of phrases. I was thinking about that this week. It's the kind of thing that almost any religion would agree with, you know, that we've got to walk in the light. We've got to be enlightened. We've got to see the light and we've got to avoid darkness. You know, that that's something the, the universal uh, brotherhood of man agrees with. But to understand what that means in the Bible and what the Bible is saying when it says that, one of the helpful things is to read the broader context. It's a basic principle reading anything, but especially for reading the Bible that if you see a phrase or a verse that doesn't really make sense on, if you read around what that verse says and the, and the, the verses around that, maybe that will shed light on it. And I think that's the case here where John tells us specifically what he has in mind for people who are reading him, what, what he believes walking in the light entails as he is saying it. So that's what I want to look at clearly under, uh, today under three points. And the first one is this, that to walk in the light, we've got to see ourselves clearly. He says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the, tr the truth not in us. Notice, it, 
we're not deceiving anyone else around us. We can say we have no sin, and everyone around us will say, okay, that guy is definitely delusional. But it's ourselves who we succeed in deceiving in those times, and, and we're avoiding the truth. And, and this is a challenge to us in, from all sides. Uh, you know, it's a challenge to both the religious and the irreligious. But let me deal with you uh, religious people first. Uh, most of you are pretty religious. I mean, you're, you're here now. So, uh, you know, when, when he challenges, you know, he's writing, writing to, uh, to people who, who say they follow God. And he says, if you say sin is not an issue for you, you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. And this is something that, that actually you see affirmed in the life of Jesus. The most religious people, the most righteous people, were the people that Jesus had the biggest problem with. Remember, it was all the people who thought they had it all together who Jesus was always saying, you guys are the most deluded among us. And then it was always the people who were most aware of their problems and of their issues that Jesus was always the most open to and most welcoming. And, and uh, you know, that goes back to what the message of the Bible is, is that we're all sinners, as the Bible says it, and none of us can save ourselves, and none of us can redeem ourselves. And so because of that, people who, who call themselves followers of Christ, people who understand what it means to follow Christ, should be the most humble and the most aware of their guilt and their flaws and their failure to measure up. And the irony of the Christian life is that the deeper you go, in your relationship with God, and the higher you go in your compliance with the law of God, what happens is, is the more aware you become of how far you still have to go, and thus the more humble you get. So the more holy we get, the more humble we get. The more we become like Christ, the more we're going to be aware of how much we're not like Christ. And so, you know, the, these two things gain weight simultaneously. And let me give you an example of this. Uh, the Apostle Paul is probably the greatest example of this. Can you flip up uh, the next verse there, Alan? Uh, now, in Philippians 3, 3, Paul describes himself before he was a Christian, before he was converted, and he says, before, before I was converted, the way I saw myself was that according to the righteousness of the law, I was flawless. So if you had met Paul before he met Jesus, he would have said, no, I, I don't need to be forgiven. I don't need... I don't need uh, mercy because I'm completely flawless. My life has been lived in complete compliance with the law of God. Now, if you know the story of Paul the Apostle, he then met Jesus and his perspective changed. Early in his life, he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. Pop that one up. And in 1 Corinthians, he says, I'm the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle. So he's getting this sense of God's grace in his life, and as a result of that, he says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an apostle, but I'm the least of the apostles. In fact, I'm not really worthy to be called an apostle, but then he goes on to say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So he, he, as he comes to faith, as his faith grows and deepens, he gets a, a greater sense of God's grace and, and God's mercy for him. And then, you know, it's very remarkable at the end of his life, he put up the, the last verse, Alan, it's in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, Paul is, is, is given, you know, 
kind of wrapping up his ministry, giving, giving his instructions to Timothy. And he says this, and this is after he's writ, written about a third of the New Testament. He's planted churches in every major city in the Roman Empire. And he's about to sacrifice his life as a martyr for, for his faith. And he says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. Not I was the worst of them, or not, um, you know, I've been forgiven a lot, but now I've made a lot of progress. But now, he, here he is, probably closer to Christ than any, anybody ever lived. And, and perspective is, I am the worst of sinners. Isn't that weird? Now, did he really have a self-image problem there? What was going on? Why is it that Paul can go get to the end of a life, you know, of being perhaps one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, and look back at himself and say, I'm the worst of sinners? The reason for that is because the closer you get to God, the more you grow in holiness, the more you're aware of how far you still have to go. And so the people who are the closest to God are also the most aware of how far they are from God. And the people who are the most, have made the most progress in personal holiness will also be the people who realize they've got the longest way to go. And so those people will be incapable and unwilling to look down on anyone else who hasn't quite gone as far as them or hasn't made the progress they have. Because growth in grace is a growth in humility, a growth, growth in being merciful, a growth in, a growth of, in being gracious towards others. Uh, you know, as we become closer to God, we become more self-aware of brokenness and yet more aware of God's great grace towards us. So, so that, that's the challenge to all religious people. We, we, you know, if you're really trying to grow in your faith, what that means is you should be growing in humility. You shouldn't be looking down on those who haven't gone, gotten as far as you, but, but you should be all the more aware of how dependent you are on God's grace. But it's also a challenge to, to our age, because this whole concept of sin is kind of, removed itself from our culture, in a sense, because sin, as the word is used, as the concept is used, assumes moral absolutes. So if all morals are relative, then, then how can you really uh, make an issue out of uh, sin? And it also assumes a God, because sin is, is all about our accountability, ultimately, to God. And so what's happened in our age is we've removed sin from from the vernacular. Instead, we, we replace it with words like, well, wounds and pathologies and brokenness, victimization and, and sickness and addiction and things like that. Because we, be it from any of us to say, well, you're doing something wrong and you've got to start doing something right. That's just not the way we think. Or maybe your problem is this habit or, you know, it's, it's, it's just a habit. This pattern of of behavior that that's messing up your life, but 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 this, I think, and a lot of people think this really hasn't worked out well for modern America. There was a psychiatrist named Carl Melger, who was one of the leading American psychiatrists last century. But he died recently, but uh, and he, he was a, a, a prolific 
psycho uh, writer on issues related to psychology and psychoanalysis and things like this. But his very last book, written when he was well into his 80s, was entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? And in that book, he talks about how really the missing piece in our effort, and he was no Christian, he was not a, not a believer per se, but he realized that over the course of his life, he saw sin removed from the, from the, from the practice of help people who were troubled. He, the, the concept of sin and repentance were from the pra practice of helping people who were troubled. And he realized that just, that just made people more troubled in a way. At one point, he writes this, notions of guilt and sin, which formerly served as some restraint on aggression, have been eroded by the presumption that the individual has less to do with his actions than we had assumed, and hence any sense of personal responsibility or guilt is inappropriate. This philosophy comes as a comforting relief for many, but an alarming threat of powerlessness to others. So in other, other saying is we can take away the concept of sin and guilt, and, and that makes us feel better in the moment, perhaps, because, oh, oh, I don't have to worry about feeling guilty. But then we look at the problems that our life has, and there's no solution that's within the, the realm of our will in order to uh, solve those problems. So all that we're left with is victim victimhood and pathology, and, and just we're, we're just uh, subject to these forces beyond our control. Because the great contribution of this idea, of, idea of that is the idea that all of us are moral agents that are responsible for actions and are responsible to God, and then, which is crushing, except for the Bible's teaching that God is gracious and merciful and kind to us when we confess our sins. So, so the, what Carl Menninger said, and what I think what we can observe in the world around us, is when we get rid of the concept of sin, we rob people of responsibility, we rob people of self-determination, we rob people of probably one of the most basic ways of improving their life, getting out of the rut they're in and making a change in their life. So, uh, so, so that's the opportunity for all of us. You know, I think on the one hand, the hardest thing for any of us to do is to admit that we're guilty. And I found this in my own life. You know, we, we'd rather do anything, you know, blame everybody and anything around us rather than say, you know, my real problem here is that I've, I'm guilty. I sinned in this circumstance. And yet, if you can look at any circumstances you have, whether it's your issue with, with your roommate, your issue with your, your, your issue with your parents, your issue with, with your children, or your issue with, with work or whatever, and, and ask yourself, well, how have I sinned here? Even if that doesn't completely solve the problem, at least it gives you agency over the part of the problem that you can actually do something about, which is you. And so to, to look at our sin and not, and as, as John says, not to say, well, we say we're without sin, so we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, but to, but to look at our sin actually gives us a pathway to making an, an impact in the, in, the in the face. So the second thing I want to see, so walking in the light is having a clear view of ourselves. The second thing is walking in the light gives, it involves having a clear view of God's grace. He says, if we confess our sins, 
God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. The reason we can take it, the reason Christians should be the, the most willing to admit their sin and their guilt is because we actually do have a solution to them too. We can say, I was wrong, but God forgives me. I did wrong, but God is merciful to me. I chose wrongly, but God has shown to himself to be gracious to me. And see, that, that's the reason that we can pile, we, we can accept the, the bill of our sin because we believe that God will be gracious if we will confess our sins. But this goes to a, a basic principle of the scriptures, which is an important one to remember. Usually when we think about sin, this is our kick notion of sin, and think about it to the extent that, well, how does this hurt my parents, or how does this hurt kids, how does this hurt, hurt society, or how does this hurt hurt this world we live in. But to understand sin from the Bible's perspective, you've got to understand that first and foremost, the problem with sin is that sin is committed against God. And it's God who we're accountable to and God who we have to deal with first when we're considering the realities of, of our sin. Uh, and I think the best example of this is the life of King David. You know, King, you know, king in the Old Testament, the guy who killed Goliath, and later became the king of Israel, founded Jerusalem, and was the patriarch of the Messianic line. Jesus himself was called a descendant of David and identified that way. But he was famous for being a great saint. He, he curated and wrote many of the Psalms, but he was also a profound sinner. He was a sinner and a saint, both of those things simultaneously. And you might know the story. Late in his career, he uh, sent his men off to war. He said, you know, I don't want to go sleep in tents anymore. I've got this nice, nice castle that, that I live in now. But while, while all his guys were off were war, he has an affair with, with, with the wife of one of his guys. And then when, when this is about to be discovered, he he abuses his power, manipulates, ab abuses his power to arrange for, for the, this guy who was one of his most faithful soldiers, one of his mighty men, to be uh, killed in battle. Killed in action, 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 And then he lies about all this. So he's, he commits adultery, he commits murder, he abuses the power God's given him as king over, over the nation. And he's going to get away with almost all of this, except the, the Nathan comes to him and, and confronts him. And, uh, and, and so he's exposed. But when this happens, there, there's a psalm in the Bible called Psalm number 51 is his prayer of confession particularly his response to uh, Nathan's confrontation of him. And, and in Psalm 51, he says something amazing, because here he has, he's sinned against his nation. He's sinned against Bathsheba. He's sinned against Uriah. He's basically made a mess of, of his whole legacy, in a, in a sense. And yet in Psalm 51, he prays and he says to God, against you and you alone have I sinned 
and done this evil in your sight. So he's a murderer, he's an adulterer, he's, he, he's an abuser of his power, and yet ultimately, as he stands before God, he recognizes it's God and God alone who he has sinned against, and it's God who he is accountable to. And, uh, you know, you, you read that and you say, well, wait, well, what about, what about this marriage you broke up? What about this guy you killed? What about this nation who you've, you've misled for your own petty, petty purposes? And he says, no, it's really against God, first and foremost, that I've sinned. And if you understand that, you understand what the real gravity of sin is and what it really means for a believer in God to admit their sin because it's against the holy God that we are it's to a holy God that we are accountable and uh, and yet at the same time understanding that helps us understand the glory the glory confession the, the the greatness of this promise if we confess our sins to God he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. So it says he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Well, you know, faithful means that uh, you don't have to wonder that, well, maybe this time if I confess to him, this time he's going to get me. This time he's going to change his mind and actually hold me accountable. But you can, you can depend on the fact that each time we go and confess our sins to him, he's going to be, he's going to be gracious to us. He, and, and then, but it also says he's righteous to give us our sins. And this is a little confusing because, you know, you think about, I mean, imagine the scenario where you go home this afternoon and you find out someone's broken into your place. And if you have anything valuable in your place, I know some, some of you more than others, but uh, you have some, some, some things that are important in your place. They've all been taken. They're all gone. And then, but one of your neighbors saw the guy, identifies the guy, the police go and arrest the guy, and he's caught. The guy, and he admits to having, having stolen all of your stuff, but all your stuff is completely gone. You're not getting any of it back, so, so you press charges, you bring the guy to the judge, and the judge says, uh, you know, what, what, what situation here? And the guy pleads guilty to, uh, to stealing all of your stuff, and then you're waiting to hear the, the penalty, and the judge says, well, this time, I'm just going to let you off. I mean, how, how, how would you feel at that point? All your stuff has been stolen. The guy has been caught. The guilty person standing right there. And the judge decides he's just going to let him off. We'd say that's not a just judge, right? That's not a righteous judge. And the problem is you're, you're bearing the consequences of, of, the theft, of the theft. And the judge is just letting letting that person, person off. But when the Bible says that God is faithful and righteous or faithful and just, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that's put in perspective in terms of our standing before God because if ultimately all of our sins are against God, when God forgives us, that means that God himself is taking the debt on himself. God himself is taking the penalty of that sin, and God is taking the weight of that sin on himself. That's what forgive, forgive means, right? When you forgive somebody uh, an obligation, say, say, just to put it in banking terms, say you loan somebody some money, and they say they'll pay you back, but then you realize they're not going to pay you back, and you're just like, okay, for the sake of this relationship, I'm just going to let this go. I'm just going to forgive that obligation they had to pay me back. 
that means that you're out the money. That's why banks don't forgive loans, right? Because, because they're not going to be put out the money. When you forgive somebody, it doesn't mean the obligation goes away. It just means that the obligation is transferred from the guilty party to the aggrieved party. And so for God to be faithful and just, to forgive you your sins, that means God has to take the punishment for the sins on himself. And that's why Jesus came. That's the whole point of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus in your place. That's God himself taking the payment or the punishment of your sins and my sins on himself. Isaiah 53 puts it this way, the punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. And so it's by his wounds we are healed. What do we see when we look at the cross? We see the weight of our sin so heavy that it crushed the sun, and yet we see the weight of God's grace so gracious that he sent his son. You know, when we, when we see God clearly, when we approach God clearly, we see his grace clearly, and we see our sin clearly. And that's why the more you understand the cross, the more you're humbled and broken by the reality of your own moral failure. And at the same time, the more you understand the cross, the more you see the cross, the more you're amazed by, by God's amazing grace, that he was willing to take your guilt on himself so that, that you be forgiven. For him to be faithful and just to forgive the sins means... It's on him. It was put on Christ for your sake. And that's what it means to become closer to God. See, our guilt, our moral failure, our moral bankruptcy becomes more vivid to us in our own minds. And then at the same time, God's grace and God's love becomes more vivid to us at the same time. And if you understand both of those, and heavy both of those are, that's what will catapult you closer and closer to God. See, the closer you are to God, the more humble you be become because you're more aware of your failure. But then at the same time, the more bold you become because you're more aware of God's grace. The more broken you become because you're, you're aware that you've sinned against God in so many profound ways. And yet, the more strong you become because you're resting in His grace alone. You're more aware of your flaws, and yet you're more aware of His great love for you, both at the same time and in the same way. That's the promise of the gospel. That's what leads to a new and transformed life. That's why Paul can say at the end of his life, the end of his career, I am the one the worst of sinners, but I received mercy for this reason. And that's what you can say, too. As you step into the light, as you see his grace, you'll see yourself, you'll see his grace, more clearly. And then the third thing I want to see, and this is kind of the application here, is this enables us to connect warmly with one another. Uh, it, this gives all of us a new basis for connection and community. And that's what the church is supposed to be. If you have a community of people who are actually applying this, that creates a new relational dynamic. It, look at uh, verse 7. If, if we want the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all our sins. 
So what he's saying is there's a new basis for connection. There's something new that we have in common. There's a new koinonia that we have. And it's not no longer based on whether we're a Yankees fan or a Mets fan or, or uh, you know, what your background is or what country you were born in or what age you were or, or anything like that. It's a new, new basis for connection that, tra that transcends all these borders and all these backgrounds and all these experiences because the now, now the experience that defines us is walking in the light, seeing ourselves clearly and our, our experience, our in encounter with God. See, the new, new rules for relationships from, for, for those who walk in the light is, is a new level of humility. None are without sin, so you can't look down on anybody. A new basis for forgiveness that's why the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debt, as we have forgiven our debtors. You know, that having been forgiven, we become forgiving people. And a new common interest, because we've experienced God's grace. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another because we have in common this. The blood of Jesus' Son has cleansed us from all of our sin. See, sin, at its essence, it's, the Bible tells us the problem with sin is it breaks relationships. It causes alienation. It alienates us from God. It, it alienates us from one another. I think probably none of us have to think too hard to think of, of people who are alienated from because of, of sin in our life. Family members, friends, old roommates, or, or people of that sort. But the the blessing of grace, the invitation of grace, is it creates a new connection. It's the basis for reconciliation, a basis upon which those broken relationships can be healed, and a basis upon which two people who have nothing in common suddenly have something transcendent and eternal in common because of God's amazing grace. It frees us to let go of the stuff that's holding, holding back or keeping us apart and hold on to stuff that will connect and it creates a new community. It creates a new unity. You know, I, I saw this, this phrase that's been used to describe American society in this modern era and, and just, it just struck me how ironic it really is. It's called the lonely crowd. You know, and, and I think of that in, in, in the city, you know, when you walk down the sidewalks of the city or when you're waiting on a, a platform for your train or things like that. Here's all these people kind of standing there, but nobody's connected to one another. There's, there's dozens and dozens or hundreds and hundreds of people that you walk by, but, but who knows who? Who has a relationship? Who, who, who is connected to one another? You know, we're, we're all crowded together, and yet we're all, it, it feels like it's so easy to stay isolated, alone, and alienated from one another. The whole point of the gospel is it creates a new community, that new community is called the church, where we have a basis for connection that transcends all of that, of, of that alienation. And it's a, it's a new kind of fellowship of a shared experience of, of grace. You know, it assumes that we're all a mess. It assumes that we all need grace. It assumes that naturally we all would be alienated from one another. You know, naturally we would all we'd, we'd all uh, we'd all want to run to our own corners and be isolated from one another to avoid the risk of of a connection. But 
the opportunity, the invitation of the gospel is, as we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us of all our sin. See, grace, the charity, the generosity that we're all looking for is what we find in Christ. And that becomes our focus, not ourselves and not other people per se. And listen to that phrase again. We walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all our sin. That reminds us that we continually need to be cleansed of our sin. We can't say we have no sin, because that would say make us believe the truth is, is not in us, but, but we can confess our, our sin, and, and the blood of Jesus Christ is, is, is free. There's always enough of it to cover our sins, and yet it's expensive. Well, what's more expensive than the fatal donation of your blood? Something that's bought with blood is the most valuable of things we can possibly have. So we can never presume on it, never take it for granted. It's not something that gives us pride. It's something that gives us hum humility and opens us to the people around us. Reminds me of these words from a, a song we sometimes sing. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote his sacred head for such a one as I? Was it for crimes that I had done that he hung upon the tree? Amazing mercy and grace unknown and love beyond degree. Let's pray. Father, make us people who walk in the light, who are ever more aware of our fellowship with you and our fellowship with one another because of the sacrifice of Christ for us, the blood of Jesus, your Son, who cleanses us from all our sin. Help us to live in the light of that, we pray in his holy name. Amen.